Welcome to the Minnesota Family Law Podcast. My name is Tom Tuft, and I'm a family law attorney and ADR provider at the law firm of Tuft, Locke, Jerbeck, and O'Connell. I have with me uh, two guests. Uh, one is Susan Rode, who has been a friend and mentor to me for uh, my entire career. I just realized I've been practicing over 26 years, and I think I met her right at the beginning. Um, she took me under her wing and has given me many opportunities. Uh, she serves on multiple boards and committees, and um, if you want someone creative and wise and thoughtful and charming, um, she seems to be the, the, the ticket. Um, she serves on legal committees and nonprofit committees and law school committees, um, and, and has done a great number of services for the family law community. Um, and the other one is a younger whippersnapper um, who's been practicing a few years less than me, but he's been around a lot, and he's become a real leader in the profession, um, Jim Vetter, also of Moss and Barnett. So I'd like to uh, welcome the, the two of you, and we're going to talk about uh, negotiation tactics, and this is part of a series about around divorce camp. Um, so what, what do we need to learn about negotiation? Well, I, I tell you, Tom, I, I, I couldn't agree more with what you said about Susan. And I am very curious about Susan's perspective here because she not only serves as an attorney representing her clients in these settings, she also serves as a mediator and FE&E provider. So she, she has an interesting perspective on how to prepare the client to negotiate. So, Susan, I had a few questions I wanted to ask you, maybe selfishly so. Uh, how do you get your client ready to negotiate? What is the, the kind of mindset you have going into that? And where do you want to get your client to? You know, I think sort of the one watchword would be to say, um, you don't want them to be surprised. Eliminate the surprises from the uh, discussion, from the negotiation. And that just means being prepared. It means having lots of patience if you're the attorney. Uh, if you're the mediator, it's talking to the attorneys ahead of time, making sure they've prepared the clients so that there aren't any surprises, because I can't think of anything that derails a negotiation faster than someone feeling they're uninformed or they're stupid, uh, God forbid, or th they're just surprised by something. So really that preparation with the client is key to a successful negotiation. Susan, one thing you and I have talked about over the years quite a bit are these concepts of BOTNA and WATNA. And for a lot of people out there, they may not know what those are. So maybe we ought to first identify what they are. What is BOTNA and WATNA? Well, for my client, I describe it as the good news and the bad news. Uh, for an attorney, it is, stands for best alternative to a negotiated agreement and worst alternative to a negotiated agreement. But it really just is what's the best and worst I could do in court in negotiation. And so for the client, it's talking about what's your best case and your worst case scenario. You know, one of the concepts where I think that BOTNA and WATNA, an area where I see that come up a lot, quite a bit, is spousal maintenance. Is the three of us on this podcast know that's an area where you don't have guidelines like you have child support. There typically is a fairly decent range. It's an area that gets litigated pretty heavily. How do you get a client ready 
to go into a maintenance negotiation, thinking about this BOTNA and WATNA concept? It's a really careful balancing because it's an, also the most emotional issue, maybe next to children or maybe more than children is spousal maintenance because it's tied in with what's your value as a person, uh, all kinds of personal issues, the value of the marriage and you know, self-worth. So it, there's a heavy emotional component and how you help your client to honor that, not to disregard it, but then to get them focused on the math. And so that's sort of the good news and the bad news again. The good news is the court's going to think about how long you've been married and what you've contributed. The bad news is in the end, it ultimately comes down to math. And if the other party can't afford to pay it, you're not going to get it. So it, it's a tough one, but I think using the two approaches of letting them tell their story and then doing the math is how you get them prepared, giving them comfort with the math. You know, one of the things that I've noticed with that topic in particular is that oftentimes, if you've got a range of, of duration and amount going into a mediation, the client seems to be better prepared for what may occur. I, I see too often, Susan, and I'm curious now from your, your mediator evaluator perspective, uh, you know, what do you do when the client isn't prepared and they're just locked in on one position where they say, well, you know, this is a temporary maintenance case of four years and you get $4,000 per month. How do you help to move that person along when they haven't been prepared? Well, you hope they are prepared. You hope, I mean, if you're doing your job as the lawyer, you have not come into that negotiation with how to settle it. You've come in with many ideas about how to settle it. So example, you know, one more option always, there should be several options. So the preparation should have been, you know, we might not get the duration we want, but we may get more in amount. And talking about what's more important, short or long-term, what has the best flexibility for the client. Um, if they come in unprepared, then that's my job as a neutral. It takes more time, but it would be my job as a neutral to help them get prepared, to, to help them create those options. And that's about breaking it down, you know, doing exactly what you're talking about. If it's spousal maintenance, well, let's break it down and talk about what are the elements here? What are the moving pieces? There's income, there's budgets and needs, there's duration, there's amount. Try and create as many moving pieces to help them create options if they're stuck. Well, Susan, that creates an interesting issue because you and I also talk about prioritizing a client's needs and wants. You know, what is it that a client needs versus what is it that a client wants? How, how do you have that conversation with your client to determine what the needs and wants are and what the priority of those, those needs and wants are? Well, I think you, know, you start by throwing out the frivolous ones. Like I reassure them, no one has ever been publicly flogged uh, on Nicollet Avenue or wherever. So let's not do, think about that one. But mostly it is about talking about their future, getting them to focus on their future. And what is it going, what will you need in terms of your lifestyle for your children, et cetera? And then, well, do you really need the pony or is that a want? So we'll put that as let's get the big stuff first and then we'll work on the wants, but making almost two lists for them so that they can really focus in on the needs first, I think is critical, so. 
You know, Susan, when we were talking about this the other day, you came up with this great analogy. And I, I have to give Susan credit for this because this was not mine at mm -hmm. all. But she said, sometimes you've got a 10-piece Lego set and sometimes <laughs> you've got a 10,000-piece Lego set. And if it's right. a 10-piece Lego set, it's often a little easier to identify what you need and what you need to do first because you've got, you know, the directions that say, look, we're going to start here, lay this piece down, then this piece, then this piece. When you've got the 10,000 piece Lego set, it can get very easy to get lost in any number of pieces and very, very easy to uh, lose focus on what really is important and what you need to do first. Right. How do you deal with cases that are different? Maybe the 10 piece Lego set versus the 10,000 piece Lego set. Well, I think that's where the problem comes in is sometimes the person with the 10 piece set wants you know the 10,000 piece Starship trooper uh, Lego set. And then again, using those pieces, using the options or the factors in the case and saying, how could we ever create that starship with your 10 piece set? Let's talk about what parts of that 10,000 piece set would still work in your 10 piece set. How could we make it look like or feel like that at all? And that's a challenge, but again, it's disassembling the decision into pieces and then moving them around for people. So, Susan, once you've gotten to the point where you've identified the client's uh, priorities, needs, wants, you've had the Batna Watna discussion, how do you get your client ready then to present it at the mediation? And I think of this kind of in two ways. Yeah. You know, if it's a, a mediation versus an evaluative process, be it a financial early neutral evaluation or a social early neutral evaluation, where th there might be more uh, client participation, how do you get them ready for that? Just giving an idea of the process and what to expect, maybe doing some practice runs. If you have a client who's very worried about crying or about getting angry, do some practice runs with them so that they know and understand what's what. You know, how is this going to feel to say this? So, okay, if this is what you want, let's try saying that. See how they express themselves. Coach them on some of that. Um, I think also reassuring them it's okay to be quiet, reassuring them that they can take breaks because there's a fear I'm going to get in there and my lawyer's not going to be with there, in there with me to help me and I have to say everything. So giving them that reinsurance that you're going to be there to support their messaging, that's your role and you can start or finish, but they're not going to be alone in that process is key. And uh, sometimes the best thing you can do in the negotiation and preparing them is to ask them questions so that they get familiar with the questions that, that you might ask in the negotiation and they have good answers. You know, Susan, something you said to me the other day as we were talking about this was something that Judge Roseanne Nathanson had said to you, which was identify what it is that you want, why is it that you want it, and then how can you get to that point? And I thought that was just a real easy three-step way to break it down for a client where, you know, again, if you've got the 10,000-piece Lego set versus the 10-piece Lego set, those are things you, you should ought to be able to identify with either Lego set. And it just seemed to me that was a good way to kind of progress. Have you used that, that method with clients? I have, and I think it's helpful. I think clients tend to get lost a little bit when you're preparing them. 
And so bringing them back to remind them, you know, it's kind of like having a mantra. What is it I really need to achieve here today? What do I want? And how do I know I can get it? So if how can I take those pieces and put them together so they're going to work for me? And I think that's key and why you want it in between there being that's where you do the coaching on articulating, answering questions. You know, why do I need $10,000 a month? Uh, well, you know, here's my budget, here's this. But making them comfortable with the answers to those questions is a great way to prepare a client. It's a great way to structure uh, a mediation as well or any kind of evaluative process. So another question that I've, I've had you and I've talked about, sometimes you get the client who wants to say too much and other times you get the client who doesn't want to talk at all. And how do you how do you work with those two different clients? I, I think the client who talks too much, you know, you may have uh, developed some codes with. So if I put my hand on your arm, that means you're talking too much and you should quiet down or I'll write you a note, watch you know, my cues on that. For the client who's just sort of frozen and can't talk, you really need uh, to ask questions as a way to prompt them, but also if they're comfortable in the silence, if they feel safe in the silence, uh, check in that you're accurately communicating their wishes, but maybe they're just not going to say much and that's okay too. Now, one thing I have found in the practice that is always key, and you touched on this throughout, Susan, is creating reasonable expectations for the client. I, you know, oftentimes you'll see a negotiating style where somebody is kind of asking for everything. I, hopefully they know they're not going to get it, but sometimes they seem to think that they are. And that just never seems to be a successful way to try to negotiate if they haven't really thought about, you know, what are reasonable expectations here? I, as you said earlier, I might ask for $10,000 a month in maintenance. You know, in reality, you might have no way to actually get that because there isn't $10,000 of after-tax income. So what do you do? And I think I'm probably more asking you this as a mediator. When when a party comes to the table and they, they really are, have, and they have unreasonable expectations, what do you do to try to get them back to a reasonable point? Well, I think you start with what's the source of the unreasonable expectation? Is it emotional hurt or trauma? Uh, it, it, is it friends and family uh, pushing that expectation? You know, there's an old saying that I ha a client has eight friends and one lawyer, and unfortunately, they tend to listen to the friends. And so determining the source of the unreasonable expectation Hopefully it's not the lawyer who gave them the unreasonable expectation, but checking that out and then working with it from there. Well, I can understand why it's important to your parents that you get this, the China back, you know, you've explained that. So let's talk about what else, what else is there? Uh, uh, but understanding the source of the expectation, I think, is key, number one, to how you start controlling it and pulling it back. You know, Susan, now, where I see that come up a lot is when both sides submit a budget and both budgets exceed what the family income would have been. So there's no way of getting them there. And, you know, I, I worry if that's, you know, you wonder, is that driven by the attorney or is this what the client just insisted on putting down? I mean, how, how do you deal with those situations? Uh, typically, we do some pretty simple math yeah. when that happens. I mean, it's just, okay, well, you earn $5, 
and you earn $5 and you both have a budget of 10. Hmm. So at that point, we know the math doesn't work. And so both of your lawyers could have done a very good job on your budgets and you may have together spent that, but it's just a math issue. And that's where I think budgets tend to be very emotional and um, lawyers have a lot of trouble controlling expectations about budgets uh, because it is tied to self-worth and value. And I, sometimes just let the neutral do the math. I, you know, if you can't convince the client or the client may think, and some lawyers think, well, we're gonna start real high <laughs> and then we'll, we can come down. Well, if you start so high, you exceed their combined incomes, you just end up looking dumb. You, you look like you didn't do the math. So I urge lawyers to look at least like you looked at the math and be able in the negotiation to say, well, that's an issue we've discussed. You know, yeah. We don't when have in, enough to go around. Yeah, when I'm preparing and I look at those two budgets, I'm like, these are all but worthless to me um, yeah. <laughs> because like, I can't get them there. Um, right. So it's almost, it almost is you know, not quite starting from scratch, but it's, they're, they're not particularly helpful. In no, most I, instances, they're not. Sometimes they are. Once sure. in a while, yeah. No. Well, let me ask the two of you because I, Tom and Susan, you both hit on a key thing here, and that's that's neutrals or experts. How how do you use your neutrals or experts to help you set client expectations, and and what's a good way to use those individuals to to prepare your client? I think they can deliver the bad news, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. what I use them for. I have a, a case, and I'll say her name. Um, Joni Moberg um, had me in a in a situation where I was the FE&E provider, and her client didn't think she, it was a, a wife who was an attorney didn't think she should pay maintenance, and Joni knew it was a maintenance case, and so she got me as the FE&E provider to say yes, it's a maintenance case, but she didn't want me to say what the number would be because she thought she could do a better job on her own working with opposing counsel. So she got her client over that maintenance hump using me uh, in that role and then worked with her client on coming up with a number that, you know, I know was far less than I would have recommended as an FE&E provider. So I thought that was a really wise yeah. use of the process. It can be, yeah. I think that, I think, um, you know, back to the idea that families get expectations. Uh, like, for example, the father will say his business is worth $5 million at least. Bringing in a neutral CPA to say, well, here's how we do this in family law. This is the most it could be is $375,000. It can be a way of you saying, boy, I did my best to get you the highest number I could, but we hired the top expert and this is all I can get out of it. You know, it, it takes the burden off of you a little bit and keeps that sort of safety with you and the client, I think. Yeah, I, I think on the financial end, those are always valuable. I, I think on the custody parenting time stuff, parenting coaches often help to deliver sometimes a hard message in a nice way that, that sometimes isn't always getting through. Um, I've, I've had a number of instances where that is help the client sort of bridge that gap between, all right, here's my, my want, but here's ultimately what's reasonable. And that's, they've been a good use of that. And I know the two of you use them, I, I suspect with a fair amount of success as well. Is that right? Yeah, I think it gets the parent focused on the child, which is really hard to do uh, in a lot of cases where it's being litigated. A coach can be a good way to refocus parents, uh, certainly. Yeah, and I think a lot of times they're hearing the message that 
we as attorneys might be giving them, but they're hearing it in a maybe in a I don't know a more gentle or more, less legalistic way, uh, more uh, maybe more compassionate way, or maybe more uh, child developmentally focused. Um, yeah. Just whatever tools those those really good coaches use, um, they're they're pretty effective. You know, I think what one final comment is when you prepare your client. One of the more important things is don't let them get your goat early on. Parents like to, or clients like to get your goat. You're, you don't have my back. You're not fighting for me. You don't have a strategy. If you're a good lawyer, you're not going to be, and hopefully you're not doing any of that. Don't be distracted by that. I think that's really important. That's an emotional response and it's your job not to react to that. Yeah, I, I, I think this is, this. This topic we're talking about is absolutely vital to having a successful EDR process. If you have a client with unreasonable expectations heading into it, you're going to have very little chance of, of getting things resolved. And and I've seen it before, and I know Tom and Susan, you do a ton of mediations, both of you. You know, the mediator then becomes the bad person because they've got to deliver the hard news. And now they've lost any faith in you, and they're just, the client is saying, well, let's just go litigate. And, and that likely isn't their best option, but that's where they're often headed, it seems. I think so. So I know we don't have a lot of time left. So this is uh, really comes out of divorce camp uh, planning. Uh, divorce camp is going to be on negotiation. Uh, I know Susan shared it for many years. Um, she sucked me into being the chair for many years and then uh, graciously co-chaired it uh, with me. But um, Susan, you're on the divorce camp committee. Uh, what... Uh, what more can we look forward to? I know it's still in the planning stages, but uh, anything more on divorce camp? It's in the early planning stages, but you can be assured if depending on virtual or in person, we're keeping our fingers crossed as to how that works. But as usual, it will be a format that gets you up and thinking, certainly. Um, divorce camp, for those of you who have done it, know we get you working and thinking in a different direction, and this will do the same thing, I'm sure. So, well, I really want to thank you two for joining me, and and uh, I'm, I'm going to have to go back and re-listen to this because there were some tips in there that uh, I was doing some tech stuff down here that like got my ears perking up. So, I want to thank both of you for uh, you know really putting some uh, thought into this and and uh, sharing some really helpful information. Thank you for having us. Yes. Once again, we have come to the end of an episode. So to my family law colleagues, I say thanks for listening, and I look forward to continuing these discussions. Now take care of yourself and your family so you can take care of your clients and your business. Once again, we have come to the end.